Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the wake of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. So please bear with us if there are any issues with sound quality. The novel coronavirus originated from a seafood wet market in Wuhan, China, but it didn't take long for it to spread across the world. The making of this pandemic called COVID-19 is the latest and most stark reminder of how globalized and interconnected our world is. COVID-19 has led countries to shut down their borders, prevented the exchange of goods, services and the movement of people. This has led many observers of world politics to proclaim the end of globalization as we know it. At the same time though, international cooperations and the institutions that enable it have never seemed more crucial. Now, more than ever, the world seems to need certain forms of cooperation and internationalism if not globalism and global governance to effectively tackle the pandemic that seems to know no borders how are world leaders coordinating to defeat the virus how crucial are international institutions in tackling the pandemic what are the geopolitical challenges that we need to overcome to respond effectively and decisively to covid-19 to discuss these issues i am joined by my colleague rudro choudhury rudro or rudy is the director of carnegie india His research primarily focuses on the diplomatic history of South Asia and contemporary security issues. Apart from being a historian and scholar of international politics, he's also a commentator on contemporary policy issues and has been writing about the India's response to the current crisis. Rudy, welcome to Interpreting India. Uh Rudy, so I want to start by talking a little bit about what seems to be something of a paradox. at the heart of the way that we are trying to understand the current crisis particularly in its wider global dimensions so on the one hand this crisis seems to be as good an example as any of what the historian michael geyer calls the global condition right that there is something about the nature of the world in which we live which is so tightly interconnected in so many different direct in dimensions that what happens in one part of the world has significant implications for how the other part of the world not just lives but is actually constituted so in a sense there is a condition of globality which i think the covid-19 epidemic really epitomizes and brings home with such stark clarity at the same time it seems like much of the response at least to date and we are recording on the 30th of march is primarily been along national lines and there has been something of a resurgence of the state within national boundaries as being the primary entity that affords security to its people so on the one hand we have this global challenge which shows how globalized the world in which we are but it seems that the primary response to it is a series of national responses of course countries have been learning from one another but have we really gone much beyond that as yet so shinat um, you know as you rightly say i think we are faced with a particular paradox and you know if i had to look at the way in which this crisis has been read by state leaders by practitioners by scholars there seems to be two schools that are very quickly emerging the first school seems 
Um, the first school has a view that is particularly Hobbesian, if you like, calling for the end of globalization. And here the argument goes that the in the present, for instance, the wave of change that we are seeing, the rise of nationalism, the slide towards protectionism will be irreversible. So whether it's IR theorists or people who study international relations like Stephen Walt or practitioners like John Allen, I think the argument seems to be suggested that the era of hyperglobalism is, is, is over. They've been kind of now very quickly and rapidly moving into a very different definition of international relations in itself. I, I think I, I would take pause there. There's a second school, which I'm far more empathetic towards. Um, and here you have a range of writers today from John Eikenberry and others who've been kind of basically saying, look, just hold on. Globalism's under challenge. There's no doubt about it. This challenge didn't start because of the pandemic. These fault lines were written up in the post-2008 period after the financial crisis. They became starker come 2016-2017. The United States um, had a very different approach to multilateralism following the presidency of Donald Trump. And what we're seeing at the moment, for instance, is an exasperation of exactly those fault lines, the deepening of those fault lines. But I think where this school, I think, scores is to say is let's not be knee-jerk about globalism in itself. Yes, we are seeing the rise of populism. This is going to be the era of big government. Big government is back. It's going to be the era of government, big era of big government funding, of government-led economics. And those are all the exigencies that are going to come into play as this pandemic works out over the next three or six months. But after this, after this period of immediacy, for instance, I think what we will see is a return to some form of internationalism and globalization. So I'm of the firm view that this is certainly not the end of globalization, but just a very different definition. And I think here, you know, one last point I'll just make is what you're also seeing with this crisis is an incredible amount of human agency, social mobilization, connectivity, collaboration, whether it's in the science world, whether it's in health whether it's non-state actors connecting in different parts of the world to make sure that they can share samples, that they can get the R&D with regards to the potential vaccine that may or may not be created in the next 12 or 18 months. So I think at the lower end of politics, we're seeing a huge amount of connectivity, which is not surprising given the levels of globalization over the last 30 or 40 years. Rudy, I quite like the way that you're putting this debate across, right? Which is to say that if we look at various kinds of crises uh, that the global economy has had, say, over the 20th century, and of course, most recently during the global financial crisis, what we find is not so much a straightforward trend line towards deglobalization, except in extraordinary periods like the Great Depression, but periods where there is a reconfiguration of globalization. And certainly the 2008 financial crisis seems in retrospect to be have been one of those kinds of moments, right? Because at that point too, there were lots of obituaries which were written for globalization. Uh, what we saw was that yes, certain forms of global flows and connections did recede, but other kinds of ways of connecting with other parts of the world did accelerate as well. Uh, I know this is very early days still, but I just wonder if you can look ahead and see which parts of the global world in which we live today might actually look different. One particularly strong candidate seems to be migration. Now, as we know, migration has always been, particularly in the 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century, uh, the weakest leg of the globalization flows. Uh, that's where nation states have been most assertive. 
uh, the, the trend that you refer to of populism is, of course, fed particularly in Europe and the United States by a very strong sentiment against migration. So do you think in the new configuration or new reconfiguration of globalization that is now going to take place? We're going to see migration to be the one leg of globalization, which is going to recede far more than the others. Yes, you know, I think I agree with that. As I said, I think this was a trend where the fault lines have deepened over in the last decade or so. The experiment of globalization has to many different populations run its course. And the best expression of that, which connects with the question that you have on migration, um, can be seen in Europe, can be seen in the way the United Kingdom has approached this whole the whole case of Brexit, for instance, you see it in the disconnectivity in the U.S.'s approach to multilateral trade, for instance, which has its own effects on the movement of labor and migration. And I think what we're beginning to see is what the sociologist Ronald Robertson in the 1980s would call the return of globalism. But here I would say is if you think of globalism as a seesaw, which has a fulcrum in the center, and on the one side, you've got universalism or globalism. And on the other side, you have excessive localism. I think where we are at the moment, the balance between the two will be determined by the fulcrum. And that fulcrum is very much this pandemic. And I think the rate at which the pandemic spreads over the next three to six months, so its scale as well as its severity, will to a certain extent determine the balance between universal values, ideas, and connectivity, and the need for ultra-localization and protectionism. And I think in this balance, for instance, the first candidate that will suffer is the people-to-people movement and migration, especially when it comes to economic migration. Sure. And it also seems to me that as much as we talk about globalization, deglobalization, etc., we cannot really leave out the more, you know, conventional parts of the picture of international politics, particularly great power politics. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of talk over the last few weeks about the Spanish flu, which struck the world soon, the tail end of the First World War. Uh, But, you know, when we observe the anniversaries of those events about uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was hardly that much talk about the Spanish flu. You know, everyone was talking more about various other kinds of things, about how the war came to an end, or about the Versailles Treaty and what it meant for international politics in the rest of the 20th century. So it just seems to me that, you know, as much as this moment captures our attention, the underlying power dynamic uh, is not to be forgotten. And there, uh, you know, we were already, this crisis in some ways overlays on a sharpening rivalry between United States and China. Uh, just before COVID-19 really took all the headlines, we were talking about the trade war between US and China. Uh, there was something like a trade truce which had been negotiated. Uh, I'm just wondering, how do you think this crisis has now impacted on that very crucial relationship between the two most important powers in world politics today? So I think significantly, I think um, the difference between this pandemic and the breakout of other mini epidemics that we've seen in the recent past, so whether it was SARS or whether it was Ebola, which was, of course, far more localized. But I think the one differentiating factor is, without doubt, global leadership. And this has been, I think, significantly shaped by the existing tensions, and if not the clear lines that have been drawn between the US and China. Um, I think Trump's constant use of xenophobic terms and terminology when it comes to the definition of the virus, um, and on the other hand, the 
untactful approach that China has taken on. It's trying to create a new narrative by suggesting that the virus somehow was created by the U.S. military. I think these are kind of languages that are only symptoms of a much deeper cause. And I think this is a structural conflict that we're going to see between the U.S. and China for quite some time. So, you know, even if you take corporations today, corporations are thinking about mitigation strategies when it comes to China, primarily because of the pandemic. But a lot of those mitigation strategies um, date back to about 2017, 2018, when they got early indications that the U.S.-China spat was actually far more structural rather than temporary. And I think we're beginning to see the huge exasperation of that today. The fact that the two largest countries in the world just can't cooperate when it comes to dealing with this global pandemic, when it comes to the huge disruption of global supply chains. And here I should say is that, you know, and perhaps we can talk about this a little later, for countries like India, I think there are interesting choices. I think countries like India, for instance, could go down the route of trying to adopt some of the blame game narrative. And we're beginning to see that in some part of the commentariat. Um, but I think we have to be very, very careful of what positions we take on these issues when the main focus ought to be the crisis at hand. Sure. We'll come back to talking about India and its particular positioning in the current context. But I want to pick up on the one very important point which you made, which is about, uh, you know, already kind of thinking about how to reconfigure supply chains, you know, particularly the Trump administration has been talking about bringing supply chains back home. We also know that there have been advances in technology which have allowed certain companies to bring, you know, units back out of Asia into Europe, you know, particularly, you know, we have classic examples like the Adidas factory coming back to Germany and so on. I'm just wondering, you know, is this crisis going to lead towards a greater emphasis on nationalization of supply chains, as some people say? But at the same time, you know, is nationalization a good enough security strategy as far as supply chain vulnerability is concerned? What if your national supply chain is under a lockdown area, for instance, right? I mean, so how do you think companies and states are going to be thinking about these kinds of things? So I think it's a double-edged sword, as you say very rightly, is the, at some level, all companies, corporations, and countries are now going to be thinking about serious mitigation strategies. The idea of centralizing supply chains in countries like China, or even centralizing supply chains when it comes to pharmaceuticals in countries like India, these are going to be very closely examined. But the key question then is, what is the alternative? A, there's a cost to unplugging the supply chains, diversifying them, moving them back to the West, for instance. There's very heavy labor costs. Some of that might be undermined by technology, as you very rightly pointed out the case of the Adidas factory moving back to Germany. But there will be a labor cost in this diversification strategy in itself. But again, I should just say is that I think what we're seeing at the moment is the extreme accentuation of fault lines that have already been drawn in the last two to three years. Between 2018 and 19, 56 US companies moved out of China, 22 relocated to Vietnam. So you saw a diversification strategy. A lot of the supply chain was on the bottom end of the ladder, so not on the top end of technology. But on the other hand, you see another story emerging from China. And that story is about getting beyond the crisis as best as they can, or so, or, or so the state media tells us, and getting basic manufacturing up on its feet. So if you look at Apple, for instance, it'll start producing, um, it'll start manufacturing on the 1st of April. Foxconn will start manufacturing, which produces for Apple in China. German automation companies will start manufacturing in itself. So I think 
I would agree that you will see a huge amount of diversification on supply chains, a lot of thinking with regards to the same. But once the immediacy and the urgency of the crisis rescinds in six months from now or nine months from now, when you have the cure to COVID-19, whether it's a vaccine or otherwise, people will take a step back and have take a more rational perspective on how you actually divvy up the supply chain diversification. Okay. One of the things that has struck me about the current crisis and what it might portend for the future is the question of automation. Over the past few years, we've had these debates about increasing automation, robots, AI, cloud, the combination of these kinds of technological platforms, you know, creating structures of automation, which would take away jobs from human beings. There has been this debate about how do we then think about the future of work itself and so on. But I just wonder if the current crisis might actually end up giving a bit of impetus to this trend towards greater automation. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to have factories which are almost completely automated, you don't have to worry about what the impact of pandemic on workers is going to be. So presumably future lockouts don't seem to have to look exactly the way that they are currently playing out today. You don't. I'm guessing a number of top-end technology companies and manufacturing units today are thinking or will start thinking a lot more acutely about automation in itself. A robot does not get a virus, a human being does. So they will think of this from a productivity perspective. But I think on the other hand, and at the end of the next six months or to a year, therapeutic is actually created for COVID-19. I think there will be a larger, much larger economic, a socioeconomic question that we'll have to deal with. And it's the same socioeconomic question that the future of work theorists have had to appreciate and understand when it comes to developing countries is what do you do with the balance between technological prowess and the need for employment and labor? The recent reports in the United States seem to suggest that we're looking at millions and millions of unemployed in the United States. What are you going to do with that labor? So I think that these are exactly the division of questions that one is going to have to very carefully weigh. So my sense is, A, yes, it would make a lot of sense for future manufacturing to be thinking about automation. But B, the extent to which this pandemic redefines our socioeconomic priorities at the end of three to six months will also determine the responsible position that states will push on to the manufacturer when it comes to simple question of labor and and employment. Yeah, sure. Though at the same time, you know, I've also been thinking that uh, alongside this debate around automation, there was also this debate about universal basic income and providing some kind of steady source of income for people who might be losing their jobs to machines, so to speak. And, uh, you know, if the playbook that has now been opened up, particularly, say, in the United States, where the state is now willing to think of direct transfers of money, even for a shorter period of time, if those kinds of, you know, approaches to thinking about these questions can be scaled up, then potentially we may well be in a world where we have automation on the one hand and basic income on the other. Of course, some combination, not not entirely that it's it's going to be a hundred percent push towards that kind of a world. But it just seems to me that the kinds of things that were being talked of as being in the horizon of possibility may perhaps be closer to us than what they seemed like before the crisis. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think, you know, if you're able to keep a balance and synchronize your priorities, between direct transfers and basic income on the one side, retraining, which is a big part of the future of work exercise on the second. And the third is the introduction of new technologies and potentially new supply chains. You might just be able to create an ecosystem that is buoyant and works. 
But I think what we've seen, and here comes back to the question of leadership, is whether it's the United States or whether it's countries in Europe today, is there the kind of leadership and the, and the understanding of the social aspects of these deployment strategies? Are they are leaders going to be able to actually synchronize this for it to work in balance? And I think that's what I worry about. But you're absolutely right. I think people will think much more about automation, um, especially, you know, in the post-COVID period. And I suppose, uh, you know, the way all of this plays out, of course, will be mediated through politics. Uh, You know, what kind of political forces end up being energized by the crisis, what kind of stances that they take, because, you know, like many important crises, this crisis also scrambled politics, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you're seeing conservative right of center governments in the United Kingdom or the United States, or even a, you know, sort of slightly moderately right of center government in a country like France, willing to take actions which you typically wouldn't associate with conservative parties. So, so I think, you know, there is much that still remains uncertain about how politics will end up mediating all of these questions. Uh, But I just want to sort of pivot a little away from the question of globalization to talking about the flip side to it, which is about what is the nature of cooperation or lack thereof that we are currently seeing. And again, it seems to me that, you know, a lot of things which have been attempted in the domain of international cooperation at this point of time have primarily come out of the 2000, post-2008 global financial crisis playbook. Uh, you know, I think of, for instance, this extension of uh, US dollar swap lines, right? Initially, it was given to the C6 countries, then the United States has extended to a number of others, including Mexico, Brazil, uh, and Australia, and so on. So at some level, there has been a much quicker recognition of the need, at least to cooperate in certain dimensions. But, you know, if you look at other platforms and institutions, uh, or at least bodies which came up after 2008, uh, and I think particularly of the G20, they seem rather conspicuous by their absence. So I just wonder how you're reading all of this. So I think there are two key points, you know, one is, I think what you're beginning to see is some degree of economic leadership when it comes to the United States, and you rightly brought up the issue of currency swaps. I think there is a distinction between the political leadership in the United States at this point and its economic leadership. The Fed was quite quick. I think very early on, they realized that they were back in the 2008 moment, or if not worse, you saw the slashing of interest rates, the announcements on currency swaps, which are primarily provided to allies and friends. I mean, Indonesia and India have been asking for currency swaps and to be able to borrow dollars um, through these kind of FX instruments and FX lines for a long time. And who knows, perhaps down the line, it will be extended to even countries like India. So I think you saw proactiveness when it came to economic leadership from the United States. I think in terms of cooperation, I would still hold out and perhaps stick my neck out and say is, and perhaps this is just being an optimist, um, which I think I am. But it's to say is I think you know, it's too soon to take a call or too soon to ride out international cooperation. I think where you're seeing the cooperation is where it ought to be right now. You're seeing it through the WHO. You're seeing it through science. You're seeing it in a new ecosystem that is developing across the world that connects statisticians, biostatisticians, mathematicians, social scientists, um, those who design direct transfers come together to think about comprehensive solutions. So you're seeing a lot of cooperation at the bottom end of what we would call of of the political spectrum. On the top end and here with the G20, you know, I agree. I mean, 
apart, I mean, the, G, the G7 had a tough time in even coming to a joint statement because the United States held out primarily because they wanted a line on the China virus, which the others didn't. Um, so even at a time like this, it's ridiculous that grammar and syntax shapes and affects the way in which seven of the largest countries in the world can come together on a crisis. Similarly, with the G20, they had a statement out day before yesterday, which seemed at least in rhetoric, it is cooperative. But I think the key is, apart from a large economic package and thinking through a large stimulus package to get global demand up in time and not perhaps at the moment, I think what we do see is national governments come into fall. It will be that this crisis will see, and it is already seen, the return of big government. It is the return of big economics. And I think that is there is an advantage to that in the sense of that is how national priorities are being designed. People are reacting to immediacy, to urgency. Um, in regions like in India, you're seeing some degree of cooperation with the neighborhood, with regional areas. You're seeing it in Latin America. There are some stories of how Chile and Argentina and Brazil are getting together and thinking about cooperative strategies to deal with this. Um, but I think one of the, I, I think what we need to keep an eye on is the extent to which big government in most of these countries prioritize at this point of time, what role do they continue to play as this pandemic ceases to exist in time? Right. And, you know, I also wonder if we could end up having forms of cooperation uh, in order to combat the pandemic, which will leave kind of wider traces in the way that international politics operates. Uh, you know, I'm a bit of a pessimist, so let me <laughs> hold out the example of the post 9-11 you remember. You know, that was a time when uh, states did cooperate with each other, uh, you know, in terms of renditions and uh, getting people out for suspected acts of terrorism and so on. And, uh, you know, in this context, I can easily visualize information exchange between states about tracing particular individuals simply because of this need to identify the social networks in which they have been uh, circulating before perhaps they came down with uh, with the virus. So there are all kinds of possibilities about what it might mean for cross borders, sharing of information around surveillance, uh, you know, things which are uh, different in nature from what happened in the post 9-11 world, but not all that different. Yeah, I think, you know, if I put it this way, we have to keep an eye on the fact that contact tracing should not become a proxy for surveillance um, and for unmitigated surveillance. I think you are going to see a lot more of surveillance. You are going to see a lot more state-to-state -state cooperation when it comes to the movement of people cross borders. Private citizens are going to have a electronic target on their backs. And the rationale, as you correctly mentioned, will be contact tracing, will be um, trying to mitigate the stage three of this crisis, which is community transmission. But I think that is inevitable to a certain extent, and even in the success stories in East Asia or quote unquote success stories, whether it's South Korea, Singapore, China, um, or in Taiwan, for instance, the way in which these countries locked down and they were able to mitigate the risks to a certain extent was primarily because of the hegemony on information. South Korea, um, and this goes back to South Korean practices after SARS, they had access to CCTV, to call data, to credit cards. In Singapore, you have an online dashboard, which has all your personal information, your name, your phone number, which is publicly available. 
in China, the you know Alibaba created a health code, which is an app which basically has information that will track the movement of people. So in a sense, and you know if you go down this line, you could even imagine a world where everybody wearing a Fitbit is essentially tracked with a view to mitigate the risk of the spread of this virus. But that's of course on the other side of it. That's of course a, you know one could say it's an elitist argument because how many people in countries like in India, for instance, or Pakistan or Sri Lanka have a Fitbit or have a smartphone that can be tracked. And I think it's worth thinking about those arguments as well. But simply put, yeah, surveillance is going to be um, a critical issue. How each country and the world as a whole deals with surveillance, deals with the internet, I think are key questions that are going to become much sharper, not only in the months to come, but I think in the days to come. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in India's own neighborhood in South Asia. I think we've had a lot of commentary on India's response to COVID-19 so far. Uh, You've written an important piece a few days ago, which we will link to the show notes. Uh, But there has been been that much of analysis and focus on what exactly is the kind of international efforts that India is making. The prime minister reached out to other SARC countries uh, at uh, about a couple of weeks ago to try and kickstart a collective. We always talk about this idea that South Asia is united by ethnicity and divided by borders and perhaps also united by its environmental um, uh, overarching setup within which these countries operate. Uh, I just wonder whether this crisis could once again become another reminder of the very sharp and serious interdependencies that actually exist despite all other political problems between countries in this region. I mean, I I hope so. And if you look at the approach of most South Asian countries in the last 30 days, they see they certainly seem to suggest that countries are looking for cooperation. India is the largest economic actor in the region by a wide margin. I think the prime minister's e-conference with the heads of state or most most heads of state was a promising start to get a communication going, to get a small fund going. Um, India played a key role when it comes to evacuations. Um, It's playing a critical role when it comes to sharing test kits, especially at a time in which India is desperately poor for ventilators and other test kits with countries like Nepal, for instance. So I think that will happen. But At the same time, we have to be careful of the limitations of cooperation, even if it's with countries which are right across your borders. I think in the next 30 and 60 days, what you're going to see is a country like many others hypnotize very much from its own problems. And the the scale of the issue is huge, especially for a country like India. If you take an example of Sri Lanka, I was speaking to somebody there a couple of hours ago. The scale of the crisis is not as dramatic. It could well become dramatic, and that's something that Sri Lankans fear. But even given the ratio to their population, it is not as dramatic as it seems to now be in India in itself. As testing numbers increase, you will see, I think, a greater amount of community transmission. So we're looking at kind of a new reality over the next couple of days, and surely there will be ways of mitigating that reality. But I think the focus will be much more in the immediate. Having said that, I do think that in this entire story, there is a chapter that will be written out about Indian leadership. If the current leadership plays it, well, plays it right to a certain extent, basically, if the current leadership looks to their more cooperative instincts when it comes to world politics, rather than rather than gets hypnotized by a high degree of protectionism and whether that happens or not is to be seen. But I'd like to think that 
It's globalism that's going to lead India's efforts. And by that, what do I mean? I mean, looking at solutions. And if I look at what's going on in the science world as a novice, in the medical world, in terms of R&D and research, I think you're seeing a huge effort on the part of India to connect with different centers across the world, share samples, come up with a vaccine solution, use existing structures like a coalition of epidemics, CEPI, which the Indian government has invested in. I think the severity of the crisis will determine the extent to which the globalist instincts within India survive protectionist um, inclination of, of many, including in the current government. And how do you think India is positioning itself vis-a-vis China in this whole thing? You mentioned earlier on that there have been some you know, strikingly discordant voices in terms of commentary in India, not, not from the political leadership, are trying to in a sense, imitate some of the more uh, unsavory aspects of propaganda around China in the West. But how do you see that playing out here? I, th- I don't think it makes a lot of sense for us in India to be basically playing on the same pitch that America is when it comes to China. That's two different countries. There is a pre- there's a short prehistory there of their own conflict, which has been exasperated by the current pandemic. I think for those who are out to blame China or for those who are out to label China at this point of time, I think, you know, I would just say is that China will be held accountable. China needs to be held accountable. The fact is there was there was deception in November, in the beginning of December of 2019. And that deception has, at least to a certain extent, and according to many different science scientists and experts, um, helped to fuel the fire of this virus with a lot more rage than it necessarily needed. Um, but at the same time, that accountability, I think, will happen through the markets. That accountability will happen through mitigation strategies that are thought of in corporate boardrooms on the future of their business with China. That accountability may just happen in some international fora. But it's very clear that at this point in time, international organizations like the WHO, for instance, are fixated on solutions. They are not fixated on a blame narrative, which doesn't do them much good at this point of time. And, you know, it's worth remembering is, you know, we can say that the Chinese virus started there. Um, The Spanish flu started in the United States. It started in Texas. It's immaterial. What is material is the deception. But I don't think in India, I don't think we in India should be going down that route. We should be focusing on the crisis at hand. At some point, we're going to be sitting next to the Chinese and thinking about collective solutions um, and let the markets and let international fora take care of accountability and let India be a force that supports that degree of accountability. So whichever way you look at this particular crisis, it does seem like we are at a significant inflection point in terms of what globalization means and is likely to mean going forward. As you were saying, it does look like we are also at uh, a serious inflection point in terms of India's own engagement with globalization and what kinds of stances it wants to espouse on various kinds of international and global fora. Uh, Perhaps we've been a bit reckless talking about this issue while it's still early days, but I think it's always good to keep a long eye out for the trends that are playing out currently. Uh, Rudy, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Srinath. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. page.